Hi everyone, Siobhan Chapman here. Welcome back to the UBS Conversations podcast channel. For today's conversation, my guests and I will focus on investors who make up the rising generations, such as millennials and Generation Z. This will include tips and guidance around what these group of investors can do in order to feel financially prepared and financially confident. Joining me for the conversation here today, I'm glad to welcome Sharia Conde of UBS and Patrick Delaney of T. Rowe Price. Sharia is the UBS Consolidated Advisory Program manager, but also worked as the rotating GTP with the Rising Gen segment. Patrick Delaney serves as the retirement insights leader at T. Rowe Price, where he plays a key part in developing the firm's point of view and position on major topics. Patrick is focused on helping financial professionals understand and adapt to the changing face of wealth in the United States. Patrick is passionate about the psychological aspects of our industry, how emotion influence investors' decision-making process, and how advisors can tap into emotion to better engage and serve their prospects and clients. Patrick has been with the firm since 2000. Sharia and Patrick, it's great to be with you both today, and thank you for spending some time with our listeners and clients here on UBS Conversations. Welcome. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having Excited us. Excited to be here. All right, perfect. So let's get started. So what does it mean to feel financially confident, and how does one go about achieving and sustaining financial confidence? Good question, Siobhan. I, I think the tricky part to answer that is there, there are probably a, different, or a million different definitions of confidence and, and how you go about achieving it, depending on the person and their specific situation. So I, let's, let's set the stage by saying I think we'll all agree that we're going to generalize a little bit here, but um, Shree and I are also uh, relative experts in, in this area. We're also pulling from a huge amount of research and data and probably even a little bit, whether we want to admit it or not, from personal experience and preference to sharing some of these, these stories and best practices. <clears throat> and I think that there, there are two sides to this equation. I think that you think about financial confidence. There, there's the actual money and financial side of it. And then I think there's the often overlooked, especially in our industry that's so based on, on numbers and, and the quantitative aspect of things. There's this emotional and psychological side to it. Because you can make a ton of money but I always feel like you're drowning due to suboptimal savings or in, in spending behaviors or poor budgeting. I mean, you think of, and you see it all the time, you know, young doctors and lawyers who might start out making well over six figures, but they, they don't have your typical $39,000 in college debt. They have $239,000. And so I think that there, you have to really consider both sides of this equation. And uh, to me, when I don't understand something, I always look from if you, if you want to root it in kind of science and what folks in the academic world call the progress principle. And the Harvard Business Review studied this and actually studied it uh, in relation specifically to the two scientists that came up with the double helix, the DNA, but they applied it to all these other folks in business. And, the, and what they found was of all the things that can boost emotion or motivation or confidence during uh, your, your typical day or week, the single most important thing is seeing and making progress in meaningful work. Absolutely, and I completely agree, Patrick, especially in the beginning when you talked about the psychological component and its importance in being financially confident. Um, at UBS, we surveyed people about what they thought it takes to feel confi- uh, financially confident, and we discovered that it's not really about knowing the details of the market or other technical stuff. It's, that's more financial literacy, um, not financial confidence. So financial confidence, in my opinion, is a balance between three main things, awareness, expertise, and trust. Um, The feel-good factor of financial confidence comes from knowing enough. So whether it's knowing enough about your financial situation and goals, 
enough about the experts and the professional advisors who you can approach, and enough to know which questions to ask them. Um, and with that knowledge comes trust. So trust that the answers and the advice that experts and advisors are giving you are in your best interest. So that's what I would say is financial confidence. All right, perfect. Thank you, Patrick and Sharia. So moving forward, what are some of the main financial challenges or headwinds that are specific to the rising generations? So I think what's interesting is that we are in this world right now where there's a continually developing and improving digital landscape which has definitely challenged the traditional path for the younger generation to earn money. So before, accumulating significant wealth came after you graduated high school, go to college, get a job, and fully work your way up. But in today's world, we have so many young influencers, uh, college athletes, gamers, um, all who are earning significant amounts of wealth, and with it also maybe early fame through new forms of entertainment, social media, brand deals, etc. So this fast-track, non-traditional means of acquiring wealth just makes it all the more important to get a head start on financial education, too. Um, Understanding where to begin and how to manage money from day one can lead to a successful financial career and can also help avoid financial windfalls, So, which is often the case of someone who has come into wealth overnight and quite early in their lives. Um, And I think that this is especially crucial to keep in mind where a steady income stream is not necessarily guaranteed and depends on the fluctuating digital trends. That's really interesting to think about, Shreya. I I didn't even think about uh, the the folks coming into money, you know, prior to the traditional career path. And I think that's that's a really interesting perspective. Um, And, and, yeah, I think this generation, Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z, is different for a couple of reasons, and, and I think a good way to look at the, the financial challenges or financial successes, for, for that matter, um, is to kind of uh, look at what their collective experience has been up to this point, or what their what their financial experience or, or their collective kind of awareness of the market and how that has impact impacted or influenced you know their worldview with with respect to, to their financial lives. Um, and I, I, I think it's very akin to what a child goes through for their, their first 10 years of existence and, and how that shapes uh, their, their successes and challenges as they view the world. And the, the phrase I want you to remember is the fingerprint on the brain analogy. What I mean by that is if you look at somebody's successes or challenges or worldview for a child from ages 0 to 10, everything that they go through, every experience they have with with parents and siblings and school and activities and sports and church and vacations, you name it, traveling, every little experience they go through is, leaves a little fingerprint on their brain and helps shape who they become and how they view the world when they grow into adolescents and adults. Same thing can be said for an investor's first five to ten years of experience with money or the financial markets. And if you look at, at the, this next wave of investors of Gen Y and Gen Z and, and put it in the context of what their financial challenges that are specific to them, look at all of the little financial fingerprints that have been left on their brain since they graduated high school or college or, or went out into the working world. And the oldest millennials were born right around 1980, 1981, depending on the study. And so let's, let, let's list off all of the financial fingerprints that have been left on their brain. It's a dot-com bubble burst. It's WorldCom, it's September 11th, 
It's the run-up to a housing bubble, the subprime mortgage crisis, too big to fail, government bailouts of the automobile and banking industries, global financial crisis, the great band, the Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi schemes were, were playing in people's minds. And so then you have the run-up to the pandemic, historic inflation, supply chain issues. And so you think, how does that manifest itself into financial challenges? The phrase is called they, they're born into scarcity or ushered into scarcity. I mean, there are there's a lot of I think young skeptics out there that are a little bit skittish with with investments, the relationship they have with financial services. So, Patrick, what role should a financial professional play in the lives of the rising generation, and how would they go about navigating this? I think it's changing, and I think that the um, Kind of the value proposition to use an overused marketing phrase, I guess, is uh, is changing as well. And if you think about, uh, you go back to kind of the, the fingerprint on the brain analogies, or um, just the world view thus far. I think um, that we've done studies that kind of stack rank what role that they want their financial professional to play in kind of some of the. Um, the skill set that they bring to the table, and we compared that to your more traditional clients that were, say, 55-plus. And on, on bo- in both demographics, both the next wave of investors and, and the traditional older clients, they, they rank investment management very high. They need someone to, to manage the money, manage the investments, whether age-based, risk-based, specific to their situation. But the next two answers were, were really telling and spoke of, of the, the unique uh, needs and wants of the younger generation. And they said, we need someone to act as a financial coach was very high on the next wave of, of preferences. And the other one was to help me manage and improve my financial health. And I think that those, there were two words used in there, coach and health, that the financial services world needs to really get their arms around and embrace. Because I think it's, it's very different than your traditional kind of investment manager, money manager, portfolio allocator, you name it, that, that financial professionals have played. And, and millennials really want this, this more uh, kind of coach-player mentality. I need you to set goals for me and toll gates and allow me to achieve them, kind of going back to that Harvard Business Review Progress principle. Let's set out these meaningful steps, and I want you to coach me up to improve my health. And so I think... The, the notion for that, that financial advisors and consultants need to understand is that it's not this, uh, you know, kind of transactional, money-based, quantitatively-based uh, relationship anymore. It's much more of a coach-player mentality. Work and almost, you know, that the the notion of health kind of brings in this, this patient doctor. Although I think player coach is probably a more apropos analogy. But um, I, I think that mindset and philosophical change that that advisors can embrace will go a really, really long way in courting and accommodating uh, their revenue-generating opportunities in the next wave of investors going forward. So just expanding a little bit on that, Patrick, how does being financially confident differ today relative to prior generations? Millennials or, or Gen Z are born into or, or ushered into scarcity. And, and I think real estate investment is a wonderful test case to compare and contrast uh, financial confidence over the over prior generations. Uh, so if you if you take a traditional baby boomer or a traditional advisor client, 
and you say real estate investing, good or bad, they're all going to say it's great. It's a great investment long-term. It's been great because when the first baby boomers hit their mid-20s, which was right around 1965, and were, were set about to buy a house, the average home price in this country was like $23,000. And the average home price in this country at the end of 2020 was $324,900. And so you go, well, well, you know, does real estate give you confidence, Mr. and Mrs. Baby Boomer? And they would say, absolutely. Great investment. Love it, love it, love it. We'll do it all day. Now, if you say... Talk to me about real estate to a millennial. Let's put that in the context. Oldest millennials born 1980, 1981, hit their mid-20s around 2006, 2007, about to buy a house, putting together money. Then what happens? You have a housing crisis. And so if, if you ask millennials about real estate investing, good or bad, they're going to go, bad, it's an obligation, it's a huge risk. But the difference here is that they don't have the benefit of a longer-term perspective. And certainly, we'd like to think, I, uh, I hope, real estate investments for millennials is going to ultimately be a fair fruit and be a good investment. But they don't know that yet because of the things that they've lived through. And so um, I really think that's the opportunity for, for the advisors and the consultants to you know, tap into some of that, demonstrate their expertise. Absolutely. And I think also the emotional aspect and the feeling of financial confidence that you mentioned, Patrick, is key. And we can see how much of an emphasis on that feeling was enough to create such different experiences uh, from generation to generation. Um, and another difference that I want to point out is that we are also in this uh, time where we are not shying away from starting the conversation around financial literacy and confidence. Um, in the past, money might have been seen as a taboo subject because it was so deeply personal to one's life. But today, there are financial literacy classes at school. There are online websites with interactive modules surrounding basic topics such as investing. And, um, and just at UBS, we have our own website called The Code, where clients have access to a library of resources for all client types to learn from so that they can take that first step to feeling in control of their financial careers, which wasn't necessarily something previous generations had accessibility to. So with resources like the code or others in the industry, financial confidence is just not something that the younger generation has to go look for for themselves, but they have this large support group which will bring it to them and make it quite easily accessible. So, Sharia, what is some guidance, takeaways that you can give to millennials or Gen Z when it comes to establishing a budget and how often should budgets be revisited? Absolutely. So I think getting from goal A to goal B involves knowing how much you already have, the money you need to cover your costs, and how much you can save. So now, generally, you shouldn't spend more than 30% to 40% of your income after taxes on fixed costs like rent or your mortgage and regular costs like energy bills and credit card payments. But with this breakdown, you should be able to spend a third of your income on variable costs like eating out and vacations and travel. Um, and if you stick to this 30% breakdown, a third of your income should be available for saving. But again, something to keep in mind is that this might not be the case for everyone, such as someone who lives in, for example, a really expensive city. So whatever your situation is, your budget plan can help you work out if you're saving enough or spending too much. Um, and if you aren't saving enough to achieve your goals, go back to your budget plan and look for ways to save more by adopting your lifestyle maybe and your spending. Um, and it's important to revisit your plan because you probably know what's in store for today and tomorrow and maybe even the next few weeks or months. 
but what about your plans and goals for the years ahead? Um, you know, right now it can be difficult picturing everything clearly and big changes in not just your personal life, but in society, technology. I mean, life will probably be very different in five or ten years' time. So it's, what's important to keep in mind is what's important today can change tomorrow, and you want to be prepared. So revisit your plan at least once a year or whenever your situation has changed significantly, like moving your home or getting married or having kids or just any other life event. Um, and this will help you stay on track to achieve your goals, avoid problems, and explore more options and opportunities for growing your money. Are there any final thoughts or takeaways that you would like to share with our listeners? So final thoughts I, I, to take away, I think the big things are confidence is not just a balance sheet. It's not just a family balance sheet, a savings account. I think that there is, there is this understated emotional, psychological feeling. I mean, it's, it's built into the definition of the word confidence. And, yes, it has to do with how you manage your finances, but um, as Shreya said, it's about control and, and, and education that you have over your, your own situation. Being in the know, being aware of it, all adds up over time to this feeling like you're in control, that these outside forces, that they're not in control of your life, that you have a good control over. And I think that it's as, as much emotional as it is a financial thing that you have to understand. And I think doing the little things, making your bed, uh, helps you then go out and, and improve and change your financial world down the road. Absolutely. And I think with that, I want to end with an outlook into the future with a few members. So we uh, might have heard about the great wealth transfer, which is coming over the next few decades, and the rising generation, the Gen Y, Gen X, will be beneficiaries of that and are expected to inherit an estimated $27 trillion of wealth by 2045, and the rising generation is expected to hold five times as much wealth as they have today by 2030. So with these striking numbers and influx of wealth that is coming in the years ahead, um, it is crucial that the rising generation get their bearings and understand where they are in their financial journey today um, and lead the rest of their financial career with financial confidence. Thank you so much for those numbers, Sharia. That's really, really helpful. So, Sharia and Patrick, thank you both for spending some time with our listeners and clients here on UBS Conversations and for sharing with us some insights and guidance that you did around financially preparedness, namely for the rising generations. Thank you so much for having us. I had a great time. Yeah, thank you very much. UBS Financial Services, Inc., or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. 